somebody? That would be the sign, I believe, to start. Um, Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, another dialogue. Uh, we're talking about viral outbreaks and viral diseases. We're pretty well concentrating on COVID-19, but we're perfectly free to wander around. Uh, and we have uh, great people to wander with. Uh, on my screen from the top, I see Peter Chin Hong from UCSF, uh, Carlos Del Rio from Emory University. He's now the Dean. Uh, and Bonnie Maldonado from uh, Stanford, and I'm Paul Walberting from UCSF. So um, I think as more people join uh, the, the dialogue, we're just going to go ahead and get started. Um, and just before we uh, we opened up the, the dialogue, uh, Bonnie was talking a little bit about um, the recent changes in um, COVID vaccination for uh, children, for actually infants and uh, young children. Bonnie, do you wanna talk about that and say why you know so much about uh, uh, vaccinations? Well, um, so first of all, I'm really excited to see that we have booster doses and of the up, what they call the updated or the bivalent booster. So that contains the Omicron strain as well as the ancestral strain for all children six months and older now. So up until last week, the uh, the vaccine was only available for kids five and older for boosters, and now it's down to six months and older. So um, the good news there is that we have uh, primary series and uh, boosters for all age groups. Um, the not so good news is that nobody's really getting boosted. So we really want to make sure that um, that families understand the impact of COVID on kids um, as well as adults. So I, we were one of the uh, pediatric COVID-19 vaccine trial sites. I think we had partially as a result of the community here in the Bay Area asking for clinical trials. The families were just asking for, um, they, they wanted to be part of these studies and Really, we didn't advertise. We we people came to us and said we really want to be part of this, and we just felt an obligation. Even though I don't generally do industry sponsored studies, we thought we wanted to see the process. Back in 2020, remember we didn't know anything, yeah, yeah. and we wanted to be sure that we could watch how these vaccines were being studied and rolled out. So it actually has been very, very nicely done, and uh, happy to see the vaccines out there for kids. Um, Including and boosters. then again, Bonnie, uh, and again, Bonnie, how, how young can the kids be for this vaccine? So anybody six months and older now can so get six vaccinated. So it's virtually all, all children. So um, I'm going to turn to the, uh, the grownups here, uh, Peter and Carlos, uh, to say, what, what, what's the status of, uh, of the bivalent booster for adults? Um, a lot of us have had our booster quite a while ago now. Um, and many people are asking about uh, about a second boost. Any, any update on that, either of you? Well, let me just let me just first uh, go and say that my my biggest concern, Paul, as as Bonnie stated, is that if you look who has gotten you know who has gotten the bivalent booster of the total U.S. population, it's only about sixteen percent. Right. And of people and of people over the age of sixty five, the people that I worry the most who could potentially uh, have severe complications and die if they acquire COVID, it's only about 41%. So we have a lot, a lot of people who have yet to be boosted. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people like us who were boosted and are asking for another booster. So it's a really complex issue, right? Because the reality is, to people like us, I said, if you're not over 65, I tell people, chill. There's no urgency. There's no rush. You're well protected against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. If you get infected, you're going to feel sick, but you're going to be, you know, it's going to be mild. It's going to be okay. But if you're over 65, I'm a little more anxious, and I, I wish that the FDA and the uh, the uh, uh, you know, ACIP would would issue some recommendations fairly soon because it, it, the fact is that people are anxious about it. But but again, my biggest concern right now: if you got patients, if you got family members, if you know people over the age of 65 who have not received their first booster. They gotta get that now. And that to me is my biggest concern. 
I think when you look at the people who are dying uh, in in the U.S. right now, it's uh, it's nine out of ten uh, older than sixty five, and you know most of them, more than seventy percent, haven't gotten a single booster, uh, even though they're vaccinated. So I think that's the first thing. And the U.K. always kind of an interesting um, you know bellwether of things to come. They've prioritized uh, boosters in the spring right now for those over 75 and those who are immune compromised after older than five. So it's and they said for those uh, under 75, uh, particularly those 16 to 49, you know, don't bother about it. Um, and then they may come back again in the fall. So I want to I want to talk so, a little. Paul, let go me ahead, just mention Bunny. some. Yeah, sure, sure, sorry. Sure. Yep. One of the things that I feel is happening here is I think the as Carlos mentioned, the messaging is just not on point right now. So we're still hearing people from the FDA advisory committee, the VERPAC, who are saying, "Well, we don't need boosters anymore. We should probably not focus on boosters," based on zero data. And you know what we know is that antibodies, at least at this point, we think are protective. And we know that immunity wanes over time. Now, we're not saying that we should boost every three months, but the idea that um, offhand, there's at least two members of the FDA committee that have just said, well, we don't think boosters are should be given at all, I think is really an unfortunate message because we don't have the data to support that fact. And we know that the boosters are safe and they do uh, provide um, additional immunity. This is a respiratory virus. It's not... It's not, uh, you know, one that co- provides sterilizing lifetime immunity. So um, I th- thanks, guys. I think we'll get back to some of these things uh, for sure. But uh, I want to just uh, kind of drop back a little bit further and say, where are we in, in, in this pandemic? Um, uh, you know, focusing on the U.S. because that's our main, uh, main uh, focus for this group. Um, we don't hear much about it anymore. Uh, how many people are getting infected? Oh, uh, and I, and I think, you know, I think we're being tested, but we're not. No one's being reported. Do we have any idea, really? And I think you're going to hear uh, less and less, right? Because as soon as the emergency, the public health emergency, is over on May 10th, May 11th, people say, "Well, nothing is going to change." Well, one thing is going to change is that the states are no longer required to submit data to CDC. And, and we're going to basically lose all ability to know what's going on with this pandemic uh, because there's not going to be a, a, a data requirement. And I, that's going to be a problem. Having said that, there's, uh, you know, there is interest in looking at other things like waste, wastewater surveillance. Sure, 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 sure. Percent of people that buy rapid tests, et cetera, to know what's going on. At this moment, based on cases that we know, and cases that we know is probably about 30 to 40 percent of the real cases because most people are being diagnosed at home not in laboratories that are reportable, yeah. the, 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 the trends uh, in number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths is significantly down. And I think that's a, that's a, good, that's a good thing to see. That's a good thing to, to have. Having said that, you know, we still see a, uh, a, not, a, 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 not an insignificant number of cases where we are. And, uh, and again, as, 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 as Peter said, the biggest concern is that the people that are, that are still uh, dying, which is, you know, in the neighborhood of about you know, 1,500 a week are primarily people that are over the age of 65 and, and non-boosted. So um, what do we know about, um, and I'm hoping we're learning something about the clinical severity of disease. Um, uh, I'll reveal that I had COVID recently and it was, it was very mild. I, I think I'm lucky. I'm certainly about 65. Um, but is there is there anyone that's kind of tracking that uh how is is this a less serious disease than it was early in the pandemic is it because most of us fortunately have been vaccinated what, what do we know about the clinical severity uh of this disease um any, any of you yep it's not I, I don't think there's any central tracking unfortunately other than the hospitalization and death data that we get from cdc but there are large cohort studies that have been published over the last you know since the beginning of the pandemic and it does seem that more recent data uh, from large cohorts does suggest that we're seeing, especially with Omicron, we're seeing less severe disease. Now, whether Omicron itself is less severe, or as you said, we have more pre-existing immunity, that's the good news. Overall, most people aren't getting ill. I think the question is, as the others have mentioned, um, you know, people over 65, certainly over 75, and those immunocompromised individuals, of which there are 11 million in the U.S., so it's not an insignificant number of people, are just 
unfortunately, um, may be uh, at higher risk because uh, the vaccine may not work well, but uh, there's also the monoclones are just not working for those popula populations anymore, given the resistance to uh, of the uh, new um, Omicron variants to the antibody. So that population is really limited. So I mean, what, but have we, have we uh, followed uh, any reports of completely unvaccinated people that are getting uh, COVID for the first time? Uh, with I don't think, I don't think, I don't variant. think. I don't think there's such individuals, right? Paul? The, yeah, uh, maybe not. The, but... the, uh, the data that I've last seen data from CDC is that over 95% of the U.S. population yeah. has antibodies either from, from right. having been infected or having been vaccinated. I mean, I don't think you have those individuals who are totally naive. Now, there's individuals being born every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are naive. Fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and those are individuals that, I, you know, you worry about because they... Maybe some of them have, you know, maternal antibodies, transplacental antibodies, but when they get to the age of six months, they're going to lose those. And, and that's a cohort I worry about. So one of the, uh, another topic that I want to make sure we uh, spend some time on, um, and you can guess this one, is long COVID. Um, what do we know about, and I'm, you know, we've all seen reports now uh, that suggest that long COVID cases with the current um, uh, kind of status of the of the pandemic in the U.S. Th these cases may be decreasing. What's your what's uh, what's the group's sense of that? Is that something we can start looking in the rearview mirror about as well, or is that still something that we need to worry about? Yeah, there was um, U.S. Census data recently. People might have seen that showed that in the earlier era, pre Omicron, it was about ten percent, and now it's about five percent. So it suggests that uh, Omicron together with other things that people are doing, whether right. or not it's vaccines plus Paxlovid might result in that 10% to 5%. And, you know, even before that, there was a systematic review of about 50, 54 studies showing that the percentage was about 6% overall. But then also some good data from Israel showing that um, most people get better within uh, 12 months. So I think all of those things help me talk to patients because again, people are really scared that it may be something that they're settled with for life. And certainly there are millions of Americans who have symptoms for that's debilitating and keeping them out of work for more than a year. But the good news is that these days it's not as bad as it used to be. Um, and there's also some data showing that, you know, it's kind of older data, but it's more consolidated recently. The sicker you are in the beginning, the longer the symptoms. So if you were in the hospital, I think it's like nine months. And if you got long COVID as an outpatient, maybe you might have on average four months of symptoms. And what do we well, know so the, about- The other thing though, I, and I, I absolutely agree with Peter. Uh, having said that, I think there's still a, an urgency to vaccinate, right? To stay vaccinated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because we do know that if you look at the census data for 2020 um, and uh, 2021, we do see that cardiovascular disease is way up, especially among people with COVID. So it's not the tradition. I mean, I wouldn't call that long COVID necessarily, but there's certainly downstream impacts of moderate term COVID, I guess, where you get COVID and, and there's cardiovascular in particular and some pulmonary outcomes that are not great. And then among those populations who do, as course, we're all part of the recover trials, right? The long COVID trials. And we are seeing those individuals can have up to 200 different kinds of symptoms that we don't really know you know, how they're explained around COVID, but they're part of the catch-all definition. And we are still getting a fair number of referrals to people a year or a year out or so are still experiencing some of these. So some of them are not trivial, but the numbers are lower for sure. Um, and again, this is why we want to urge people to, to, to get vaccinated. So it's, it's my sense from some of these reports that, um, you know, that long COVID is another post-infectious chronic or complex uh, condition like some others. Uh, but we're also kind of getting a sense, uh, aren't we, that uh, any of these uh, inflammatory conditions like acute uh, COVID might uh, itself be associated with cardiovascular risk. And I think, you know, we've thought for a long time about the risk of inflammation as, a, as an underlying uh, cause, whether it's directly from COVID or not. Uh, thoughts on, on that, and does that lead us into any thoughts about treatment? 
I think one of the theories about one of the subgroups of long COVID is the clotting and the, you know, the hyper uh, uh, thromboembolic state that might also explain some of it. And then some of that is leading to whether or not, you know, um, anticoagulation might be beneficial in a subgroup of people. But again, it's, it's hard to say at this point for, it hasn't really bled into treatment paradigms outside of trials. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of, of very interesting research is being done around long COVID, and I would I would say that at a time where, I mean, COVID funding from the government has essentially dried out. I mean, we have no funding right now really to do better vaccine research, to do better therapeutic research. Uh, there is still funding from NIH for from NHH, NHLBI specifically on the on the recover cohort and. And the, the studies that are happening around that, both in pathogenesis, in natural history, and in treatment, I think are going to be critical in long COVID. So at least I feel like long COVID is going to teach us a lot about not only long COVID, but other post-viral inflammatory conditions. And, you know, I go, I, I go full circle. I think we may learn something that will help us in, in HIV, another, you know, another chronic viral infection that has a, an inflammatory condition present even when you're fully biologically suppressed. And we think that that, you know, inflammasome may be a driver of some issues like premature aging and, and other things happening to our HIV patients. So going full circle, you know, clearly the HIV research benefited COVID and maybe this COVID research is going to benefit HIV. For example, there's evidence that um, HIV, oh, sorry, not HIV, SARS-CoV-2 can actually it infects adipocytes, then they can actually stimulate uh, inflammatory pathways as well. So just this whole novel uh, pathway of inflammatory disease around adipocytes may actually help in part explain why um, obesity was such a big risk factor for complications, but it does trigger this idea that perhaps we should be doing more in non-COVID non related, non-specific inflammatory pathways. And it turns and you, out that obesity itself is an inflammatory condition, right? Yeah. All right. Which, and, you touch, and you touched on something, quite frankly, uh, very important, which is this whole issue of, uh, of, of uh, chronic diseases, right? Uh, diabetes, uh, hypertension, obesity. Uh, not, it's not just a risk factor for COVID. It's a risk factor for influenza. It's a risk factor for many other diseases. So I, I think it also emphasizes uh, that 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 we need to pay more attention to our underlying chronic conditions because part of that may explain why we have such a high mortality from COVID in our country. I mean, when you look at the mortality from COVID in our country, the excess mortality, it's only uh, only Peru had a higher excess mortality. We're number two. And, and that is, you know, that is, I mean, it's not because we don't have excellent medical facilities. So something else was going on. And I, I don't think we fully understand that. Do you think it's perhaps that we haven't paid enough attention to public health as a country? I think it's many things. Well, it's public health. It's enormous social, <clears throat> social inequities. It's yeah. racism. It's disparities. But it's also things like obesity, hypertension, and many other conditions. Got it. Got it. That, uh, so I think it's not one thing, but it's multiple things happening together. And so, Bonnie might have more to say about this in kids, but I remember that when Omicron first hit and a lot of kids were being hospitalized, they were much more per 100,000 than in other parts of the world, like in the UK. And part of the explanation some people hypothesized was because of um, higher rates of obesity and chronic uh, disease in American population in pediatrics versus other parts of the world. Yeah, early on with Omicron, about 50% of the kids who were hospitalized were obese. So real was a big risk factor. We know that during the pandemic also, children became more obese because there was less activity for them, especially in the lower socioeconomic group. So that's the other issue that, um, that may be related to social determinants of health. In Sub-Saharan Africa, this is related, but not directly related to COVID, is we've been able to knock down uh, uh, acute infectious diseases as causes of mortality and morbidity in all age groups, but now it's being replaced by hypertension, diabetes, all of those problems. So before we um, <clears throat> before we go on, and I think we can still uh, talk. Uh, there are some other issues with long COVID I want to talk about, but just to remind you, I, I skipped a slide at the start of the, uh, at the, at the dialogue today that ISUSA, the organization that's <clears throat> organizing these uh, these discussions, has a, a four hour CME program scheduled for June twenty second. Um, 
specifically on long COVID. So a chance to really dig in uh, to some of the, the international experts that we've brought together uh, on this broad topic. So do, do look into that. It's, on, it's certainly uh, listed on the ISUSA website. And we'll give you the address of that uh, later in the uh, program as well. Um, back to this and to kind of go off in a direction of treatment. Um, another question has been Paxlovid, um, both in terms of uh, treating uh, acute uh, uh, COVID, but also perhaps preventing uh, long COVID, uh, but also now some trials that are getting organized uh, where longer courses are being used uh, also in long COVID. Anyone want to uh, tackle kind of where we are with Paxlovid? Um, and by well, the way, know, tell us why we saw commercials in the in the Oscars for the for the not yet approved drug. Carlos, you want to start? Well, well I'll start by saying that, <laughs> that through the recovers cohort, the first clinical trial in treatment of, of long COVID will be with an antiviral. It's going to be with Paxlovid, and it's going to be a study of 15 days of Paxlovid versus not placebo. Interestingly enough, the way the study is designed right now versus ritonavir alone, I'm not sure if I will, you know, I would feel comfortable giving somebody 15 days of ritonavir, but apparently they want to do that because otherwise the study would not be blinded, right? I mean, you would rapidly tell who's taking the, the drug and who's taking the placebo. So uh, do, you, do, you think that, do you think that's ethical to give people I, I would say that I, I'm, I'm just saying I don't feel comfortable. I'm not a bioethicist, but I always say, I, the, I always, the proof is in the pudding. I asked myself, would I enroll myself in a study like that? And unless I was having very severe long COVID symptoms, I'm not sure I would enroll in a study like that. I mean, I don't think I want to take 15 days of ritonavir just for the hell of it. But again, uh, you know, you can argue that it's a, it's a it's it's a, it's worth doing. But that's that's the one study about to start with long COVID. Uh, you then have obviously other questions, right? Do we treat with 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 Paxlovid? What is the benefit of treating with Paxlovid? I think the data increasingly suggests that the risk of of hospitalization, severe disease, and death, and people over 65, even over 60, have taken Paxlovid. It's undoubtedly it's, there's a benefit, and I think we're again underusing Paxlovid. So this goes back to why those commercials were there in the Super Bowl because we have all this drug and we're not using it as much as we should for a variety of reasons, including people are afraid the drug-drug interactions, people are afraid of getting Paxlovid rebound, which is not Paxlovid, it's, it's just viral rebound, but people are afraid so they don't take it. The second thing, obviously, is that you go to uh, uh, you know, you, you go, then go oh, people under the age of 60, under the age of, of, you know, 50. And the question is, should they take Paxlovid or not? And then the data is a little more mixed. And some people still want to take it because they say it will prevent me from getting long COVID. I, I'm not sure that I would agree on that. And, and I tend to discourage people under the age of 50 who don't have underlying diseases to take Paxlovid. Now, if they're under 50 and they have a BMI of 35, I may say, yeah, definitely take Paxlovid. You're immunosuppressed. I think it's a different different issue, right? But if you're talking about, you know, somebody who is in good health under the age of, of 50 and has no underlying conditions, I think there's really no benefit of taking Paxlovid. And I don't see any good data suggesting that taking Paxlovid will prevent them from getting long COVID. Again, because it's such a rare outcome, right? It's, it's pretty rare. So it's, you, need, you need a gigantic trial to figure that out. Yeah, I, I, going back to the trial, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an ethicist either, but uh, it seems kind of unusual to give people a what you hope is functioning as a placebo, but one that causes side effects. I think generally with placebos, we try to uh, avoid side effects. And I don't know if anyone else on the on the discussion today has uh, themselves taken Paxlovid. I have, uh, and it's not it's not benign. I mean, there are well, definite uh, definite side effects to the to the drug. So, but it also I, made me makes me think about. You know all those patients that we prescribe right. as part of their antiretroviral regimens, including yeah, including full dose ritonavir by itself for a while until we yeah, learned, uh, that lesson, right? But I um, mean, regardless of how you splice and dice the pie, not enough people who are eligible for Paxlovid are taking it, and that's probably yeah, why yeah. we have so many deaths still. Which you know, when you add up the number of deaths of COVID, it's estimated to be over a hundred thousand per year when it settles down, and that's more than the other infectious diseases combined in the U.S., including flu, which is like 35,000 a year. 
So when you look at that VA study, which showed a 25% reduction, observational, of course, in yep. Pax, in long COVID, only about 20 to 30% of the people who are eligible for Paxlovid in veterans population actually were prescribed it. So I think that is the high-risk group. And if we are getting 20 to 30% of that group, we still have a long way to go. Uh, and that's a setting where people have access to high-quality uh, free uh, health care. So, so that's yeah, what I was going to mention. The yeah. other thing is, as we move forward, people are going to have to start paying out of pocket for Paxlovid, and that's going to limit the use even further, especially yeah. among those well, high risk groups. Hopefully insurance will pay for it if you happen to have insurance. We hope, yeah. And yeah, if you have insurance. If you right? have insurance. Uh, if you live in a Medicaid expanded that's, state. That's, uh, now, what, I hear, what I hear from talking to Asper, uh, you know, again, going back to May 11th, well, you know, is May 11th going to be like Cinderella at a midtown at midnight? You know the 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 the. the so character. so why why remind us why you're mentioning May 11th, Carlos? Well, May 11th is the day that the that the public health emergency disappears, right? It goes away and it's not going to be renewed. And if it was renewed, then it will it will happen again. But the president has already said, "I'm not renewing the public health emergency." That has a lot of implications. I said one of the major implications around data. One of the major implications is around the ability to track the epidemic, but. It also is going to put a lot of people out of out of Medicaid. Uh, it's yes. estimated that several millions will lose Medicaid because you know right now you can get them off Medicaid if, uh, if as a result of the public health emergency. But the good news is what's not going to happen is the government still has significant supply of vaccines and significant supply of, of Paxlovid. And depending on how much is used and what happens with the pandemic, whether it continues as it is, so it's, it's a spike. You know, estimates says is that they we have enough Paxlovid at the current rate of consumption to last probably by through the end of the year. So uh, at least free Paxlovid is going to continue to be available. How that's going to be distributed? How they're going to be prioritizing people? How we're going to be ensuring health equity? You know, I think that's going to be the challenge, right? I mean, is the government Paxlovid going to be available to everybody? Is it just going to be available to people who don't have insurance? We'll have to see what exactly happens. But there is still enough Paxlovid. But I, I want to emphasize to our clinicians on the call the two important messages, or everybody in the call, two important messages. If you know, if you have patients, if you have relatives over the age of 60 who haven't been boosted, they need to be boosted. And if you know people over the age of 60 who get COVID, they need to have Paxlovid unless they have a very major you know, drug-drug interaction that prevents them. But the great majority of the drug-drug interactions I deal with, just you know, yesterday, somebody called me, 85-year-old, has, has COVID, doesn't feel well. Their doctor said, no, you're not eligible. Why is this person not eligible? They're taking a statin, some, a drug that could have been stopped and then take the Paxlovid and, and do the right thing. So I, I think we are not using these drugs. We're not using these vaccines as we should. And we have them. And that to me is really a, a, such a missed opportunity, quite frankly, to prevent you know, hospitalizations, to prevent deaths uh, still from COVID in our country. And it and could be argued that... Could be argued that statins in an 85-year-old could be stopped anyway, right? <laughs> a yep, long time right. to prevent exactly. cardiovascular disease. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I uh, just want to remind the participants uh, out there uh, who are across the country, we have several hundred people, um, that um, the Q&A line is open. Um, I've been ignoring it, but I'm going to try to watch that more closely and... Uh, and try to get your questions answered. One of the questions has been, um, what about the status of other drugs for uh, for long COVID? Molipiravir, remdesivir, are, are those drugs or are there other ones in development that offer some hope for this? And kind of by the way, um, it, if you're talking about treating long COVID, does that mean that you think that long COVID is caused by chronic viral infection? Um, it's a complicated question. Anyone want to jump in and start talking about that? I think there are several factors associated with long COVID, and it's probably a, a syndrome that can be caused by different things. Um, one is uh, viral persistence, maybe. Uh, one is the presence of autoantibodies, kind of like a connective tissue disease, uh, like rheumatoid arthritis. One is the association with... Uh, uh, reactivation of other viruses like EBV. Um, and then the other is uh, association with chronic diseases like diabetes. And then we talked about the sort of like 
uh, hypercoagulable state. So each one of these might be treated in different ways. And I think that's the problem right now. A rare, relatively rare disease, even though millions are affected like five or 6% now, uh, and, and, and a hodgepodge of different pathophysiologies, each of which might be treated in different ways. Yeah, so that, uh, to that point, I think as we talked about earlier, there's so many different manifestations and they all have different pathogenic, pathogenic pathways. So, for example, uh, some of the work make, which is going to make testing right. the various theories very difficult. Yeah. So there's two different ways you approach it, right? Do you prevent long COVID or do you treat long COVID? And you can, their question is, there are ways to do both, or we're trying to look at ways to do both. So the autoantibody story is very interesting because if you look at modeling of what predicts long COVID, that is one of the the potential risk factors. So this idea of looking at autoantibodies, but not for all symptoms, just for some specific ones. For example, it's postulated that the that the two times risk for diabetes, new diabetes um, in people who've developed COVID disease may be related to autoantibodies. And then the question is, what do you do to prevent that? Um, I think those are uh, questions that we're not sure of how to answer. So prevention, again, the issue of Paxlovid is still can you prevent long COVID in those trials? The, the other question about whether you can treat long COVID with Paxlovid, again, as Peter said, depends on what symptoms you're talking about. So auto-inflammatory disease probably will not respond the same way, but uh, some of the other, um, if there's persistent viremia, which again, we don't have great evidence for that in most people, that may be a factor, but this is why the trial, the one trial that we heard about is gonna be important. By I the way, I... we, we reached out, we reached out very early on, um, well, about a year ago, I guess, to try to build into recover the Paxlovid trial. And it, it wasn't, it didn't get a lot of um, traction at first. And I, it's unfortunate, as you said, to see how it's evolved because initially it was gonna be a one-site study here and we weren't gonna use, we were gonna use placebo. So I think because of the difference, the obvious difference between Paxlovid and a placebo, I um, suspect that's what, um, Led Would have been interesting, yeah. Yeah. You know, so a couple of things. Okay, Carol. Yep. One of the things that that began long COVID. One of the things that I'm excited about is, you know, we really only have right now Paxlovid. We have Malnupiravir, where we can talk about some of the challenges with that drug and some of the concerns. And then you know you have IV remdesivir, which I, I would love to hear what you're doing, Peter. But for us, it's just really hard to administer. It's not something that is applicable. But I'm I'm excited about sort of the, the, this new drug, uh, you know, BV116, which is an, an oral antiviral, is similar to remdesivir in its mechanism of action. And, you know, the study published in the England Journal of Medicine, the randomized trial showed it to be non-inferior to Paxlovid. So I think getting better agents, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's just as good as Paxlovid and doesn't have the drug-drug interactions and the side effects, uh, I think it would be nice to have an, an, another drug. Again, yeah. we definitely need better drugs. So we, that's going to be, that's gonna be very difficult to test, isn't it? Yeah, so we, yeah. we started to, we still have our remdesivir, quote unquote, clinic. But it, as you said, um, Carlos, it's really difficult to get in still. I mean, the, the logistics of giving remdesivir, it may be the only answer for some of these very highly immunocompromised patients who have, do have drug-drug interaction issues. So we're still doing it here at Stanford. I don't know what you're doing, um, Peter, but we still have it. It's just not easy to do. And regarding remdesivir, bio, uh, oral bioequivalence, um, that issue had been uh, has been looked at since the beginning of the pandemic, really trying to come up with something that could be as bioavailable orally as it was IV. And really, it'll be exciting, as you said, to see what happens because that has not been with the um, new possible drug. Yeah. before. Yeah, it just yeah. It couldn't give anything orally until- Bonnie, while you got the mic, a question came in from Stanford, actually. Uh, <laughs> is, there any, is there any talk about uh, setting up something equivalent to the ACTG, to the HIV uh, organized trials network specifically for COVID or- um, as I think is happening is, is just going to use the ACTG as the backbone for that. Yeah, I, I, I haven't heard. So that was the initial, so very back at the beginning, right in mid 2020, I think, um, you know, Tony Fauci and others really pulled together ACTG and, and the other networks, the HPTN and others to really try to, um, to uh, launch studies. And they did that, by the way, for the 2009 influenza pandemic. And it worked very well because you were able to build into existing networks. Uh, VTEU, for example, could be another opportunity. 
Um, but that's again vaccine related. I yeah. think that's out oh, of the, B- that won't happen. It's BTU, it's called vaccine and therapeutics. Yeah, uh, but um, and so that would be, but again, VTEUs are, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how well they can retool those networks. Um, what they've been doing so far has been using existing networks. I don't know that, I don't know what you think, Carlos, but I, or Peter, I think the existing networks can expand rapidly to build. I mean, certainly the shell contracts are good enough to build in, and we have the expertise in these uh, these networks already, and there's there's at least three of them, so we could do I, that. I, I really don't think there'll be an additional network. So yeah, let's they're, they're expensive. They're expensive <laughs> to maintain, right? And you know, at the end of the day, if you ask for a therapeutic, a COVID therapeutic network, well, guess what? Most of the people doing COVID therapeutics are us doing HIV research, right? Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So well, there are a couple. <laughs> there are a couple really important questions I want to get to uh, from the from the audience. <clears throat> One that we've been hearing a lot about uh, is metformin, um, you know, a drug that keeps kind of hanging out there looking for an application beyond beyond diabetes. Uh, but some kind of interesting information. Who wants to tackle that, uh, the metformin trial to reduce long COVID? The, the comment from one of the participants was Eric Topol uh, recently uh, uh, really went quite far in encouraging its use. Uh, you know, I, I I think I think the study on on, on metformin for the treatment looked pretty uh, uh, pretty uh, impressive, uh, and something that I would certainly consider doing for treatment is not yet on the guidelines. But uh, as far as uh, as treatment for long COVID, I, I'm not sure I need to review the data. But again, the problem that we have is, is so far, you know, I think long COVID is, as Peter said. It's a bunch of diseases put together into yes. one system, right? And and which one exactly are we treating? I think we need to understand that. And we don't have right now, as you know, a biomarker for long COVID. I mean, you know, those of us doing HIV have had a biomarker for a long time, and we really want to have some sort of biomarker that we can say, well, people with COVID. I mean, you, you can you remember you and I are old enough, Paul, to remember how how HIV therapeutic trials changed dramatically the moment we had viral load as a biomarker. We no longer needed to look at hospitalizations, OIs, and deaths as a, as a, as a, as a marker, as an endpoint in studies. Uh, we need something and, like that in long COVID. And there's no, there's no long COVID uh, biomarker at all, right? Well, at least that's the thought that, you know, this recover group, but it's just been so hard. You know, they're just recruiting and it seems like it's been around for over a year now, but the, I don't think they've really come to the point where they have any really good outcome data yet on any of their cohorts. So another question that came in is a, a possibility of, uh, it mentioned the question was Paxlovid, but I guess it could be any of these drugs uh, as a prep uh, for high risk populations. Any thought about that? I, I, having taken Paxlovid, I'm not sure I'd want to take it as prep. No, but, I, uh, yeah, the closest thing to that was probably in household exposures and um, giving them Paxlovid and it didn't really seem to make any difference. So. I, I, again, given the potential gnarliness of the drug, not gnarly, I mean, you'll take it if you have to, but it's oh, yes, like yeah. a so walk it's, in so the park. So it's funny, Paul, that you mentioned that when I read the question, and again, this is my HIV mind, I thought they were talking about somebody who's taking prep for HIV, who's taking tenofovir. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because we know, you know, there's some data out there, especially from Spain, suggesting that people that are taking tenofovir are less likely to get COVID. So I thought they were talking exactly about that. Right, right, right. So let me let me ask a, another question, kind of going back to some of our earliest discussion today. Um, let's say somebody has uh, has had their all their vaccines and their boost. Um, they're kind of hanging out, waiting to hear about the second uh, bivalent booster recommendations, which we I, I hope we hear pretty soon. Uh, but meanwhile, they they develop uh, uh, and recover from. Uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, do they are they now protected? Do the, does does that give you the equivalent of a bivalent boost? Uh, who wants to talk about the there's, immunologic benefits of a, of a symptomatic infection? Pretty good evidence now that the that infection is actually a pretty good uh, marker of of further protection uh, uh, over at least you know three to six months after infection, probably a little better actually than vaccination, but um, that combination is the best, right? Infection and vaccination. 
So that may actually get somebody through to the fall when we hopefully will see a, a fall booster um, come through. So yeah, I no, think I, the, I, the, the worry that I have is people who got infected just once recently and didn't get their booster since yeah. 2002. They or oh, oh, 2020, sorry. They think that 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 is they're good to go, but it's not. You know, it's just the amount of reminders that you have. Yeah. So if you just get one or two infections and no vaccines, it's it's, it's not as good, probably. Yeah, but if you got your, I mean, I tell again, going back to advising people, if I tell somebody, if you took your last bivalent booster, even if it's a year ago or longer, and then you got an infection, you know, you're probably yeah. okay. You're you're in pretty good shape. Yep. I, I agree with that. So in another topic, I hesitate to go into this direction, but uh, why not? Uh, that we've been hearing a lot about in the news is the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, I know none of you are evolutionary biologists, uh, but, uh, but, you know, pretend you're Michael Borabi and pretend you're Mike Bob Redfield. Uh, <laughs> a comment on... What do we think and do we care and what, why does it matter? There's a lot of discussion. Yeah, yeah you saw the op-ed or the little uh, piece in the New York Times uh, earlier um, this weekend. I, we talk about it a lot here at Stanford. Obviously, David Roman is a good friend and colleague. And we've been talking about this for some time. You don't want to deflect from everything else that you're doing. But in the end, you know, and I we've asked, you know, why do we need to know? But I think you know, you're going to go down the two paths anyway. Do we need to beef up our uh, our dual use or our uh, 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 research re uh, monitoring and surveillance? Absolutely. Do we need to look at uh, natural spillovers? Absolutely. So those two pathways are both critically important, but uh, we do need to understand to what extent um, that work is being done around the world and really tracking, doing surveillance to track that is important and calling it out so that we can actually start do a better job of monitoring where dual use might be or gain a function, whatever you want to call it now, right. is uh, being done. And then one person uh, mentioned, you know, we have seven, almost 7 million people die here. We need to have, somebody needs to be accountable if there is accountability to be had. So there's more of that moral high ground piece, but I think the main issue here is to really make sure that whatever we're doing, we're investigating the origins of these viruses in a way that can help us really prevent whatever happened from happening again, which unfortunately, very likely it will happen again. But uh, those are two very different strategies. I agree with Bonnie. I think one of the arguments for knowing, and again, it doesn't change anything. We already have right. more than a million deaths. But the knowing part is like, like with nuclear weapons, there is a monitoring program there's no such monitoring program for pathogens that are, you know, BSL-4 level, et cetera, around the world. And maybe that might be the thing where you have inspections and things like that. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence why it is spillover. I mean, as ID people, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, I mean, in Ebola, we given, still don't right? know yeah. the answer for Ebola and people have been looking for, I think, 60 years. So, you know, in that sense, um, you know, I don't think we'll ever really know. Plus the Chinese... Throw away the raccoon dogs that, anyway. Yeah, yeah. You saw the recent the recent studies that are very interesting on the on the link between the raccoon dogs, right, and the Wuhan yeah, yeah. and and the virus. And I think finding that that animal uh, vector, I think, is going to be fairly important. I think just like the civet cat was, and and the dromedaries have thought to be for MERS, etc. But uh, you know, I think we need to really. It's very unfortunate that. The Department of Defense had this, oh, we think, you know, releases based on, on low quality evidence. Uh, we think that this is a lab leak. And I'm, I'm pleased to hear that today the president actually is going to is going to issue order declassifying yeah. that information. Mm -hmm. I think I think we need transparency. I would also say, though, that I, I, I do blame. I put a lot of blame in China. China has not been transparent. China has not been open. And, and if we're not transparent, if we're not trustworthy with each other, we're not cooperating with each other. This, this mistakes are gonna happen over and over again, and we're just creating more problems. So I think international collaboration and, and trust is gonna be critically important because other pandemics, other viruses are gonna emerge like this. And, uh, and uh, you know, the way China, you know, limited access and, and did all these things just increases the level of suspicion that something bad happened. 
So let me let me be a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Uh, you know, as we've as we as we know, as we heard already in this discussion, this is not the first pandemic we've seen. It's not the first emerging infectious disease we've seen. I think uh, every time one pops up, and you know, Ebola was a good example fairly recently. Uh, there's talk about setting up a, a network, a global network of monitoring for uh, emerging infections, but that really hasn't happened. Is is this going to prompt yeah, us to so we, do we that? Do have, we do have the pandemic network. I mean, a pandemic influenza network. And that's why we keep saying we already have a network for a disease that is an annual pandemic. We're now building HPAIs or highly pathogenic avian flu viruses into that. Yeah. That network is actually reasonably robust. It's not perfect, but it's better than what we have for everything else. And, and I, I think there's a real need to, to really add to that because flu we know will come, but we need to be able to pull those. And, and as Carlos and Peter said, bringing in more transparency, we need to have those sequences out there so we can start to track them. That's how, you know, and it was surprising to me that China released their data very early so that we could start building, you know, reagents and PCR diagnostics, but withholding partial, some of that other data is not helping right not only them, but the rest of the world. So so let me grab us as a group and take us from something uh, highly political and not very uh, applicable to daily practice to something that's very practical. Um, who's still masking? Um, do we... Are you going to talk about the Cochrane Review also? <laughs> I am going to talk about the Cochrane Review. Um, and I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so... Just for the audience, there was a review, Cochrane, which is a very careful, systematic review of published literature, um, scanned the literature and found uh, little, if any, parent advantage to masking. Uh, does that really apply to what clinicians and those of us that are going grocery shopping think about? Uh, uh, who wants to tackle masks today? So so let me just Go mention ahead, a little bit. Uh, I just want yeah. to talk about the Cochrane Review because I think it's being sold as something that it's really not meant to answer. The Cochrane Review was meant to review data before the pandemic, looking at how effective is behavioral interventions at getting people to mask and how effective does, is that? And if you look at that information, um, you put it into the context of what everybody said at the end of the Cochrane Review uh, release, which is, oh, masks don't work. Well, what I think really happened here, I, I, at least my interpretation, and actually the authors, some of the authors are actually a little bit in battle themselves about what they think they mean also, is that uh -huh. there's no good evidence that what we're doing around behavioral interventions to get people to mask actually changes outcomes. I would argue that the data before the pandemic is very scant. The data during the pandemic around whether people mask or not, I think you that's a very different set of data, which I don't think was reviewed in this Cochrane um, article. So I, I do think that there's overwhelming evidence, uh, not only in real world effectiveness, but uh, in trials that um, uh, that the masks work. And if you look at large population-based studies where, for example, counties or school districts that use masks versus those that didn't, when you control for seroprevalence of disease, during the pandemic, there was definitely a reduction in transmission. The Bangladesh study uh, demonstrated that mask use, although it wasn't 100%, was still a pro pro provided a reduction of 30 to 40% uh, less cases of COVID among those masking versus those not. And this is real world effectiveness. So I think the way the Cochrane Review was worded uh, did not answer the question. So, but, um, but I think there's data to support that masks work. So I'm going to say that no, I don't disagree with you, but I will also say that uh, I am personally masking less and less, uh, and uh, uh, my healthcare system has now dropped masks and only require masks when you're in in uh, you know in taking care of immunosuppressed patients or in in certain specific areas. But you know, to do a a primary care visit on a on a on a well individual, you know, or a well HIV patient, you don't need to mask. You, 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 yeah. you probably you're- So, so, so let but, me- But let me Carlos, let me... that's a different question. I was just talking, going back to the Cochrane, and I agree with no, you. No, but, but, but We're Paul dropping asked, the masking out. 
Paul asked who's still masking. Oh, so I want to interrupt yeah. with that, Bonnie. I think you just flew back from Houston, didn't you? Yeah, I well, I was in did, Philadelphia, but I had layovers. Yeah, I will mask. Did you wear a mask? I double mask because there were, I was sitting in a first class because I got upgraded. Yay. Oh, why not? But 12 of <laughs> you us. You it, Bonnie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there were 12 <laughs> of us and five people, including the guy next to me, who were snotty nose, sneezing and coughing. And, you know, I know I'm not going to wind up in the ICU, I hope, but I still don't want to get sick. So I put on two masks. Now, did I wear a mask any other time when I went to Europe? Did I mask? No, I didn't mask by right. But I'm sitting did, in a little did you go, tube. Did you, to, did you go to restaurants? Oh yeah, I haven't masked. I really haven't masked. But, uh, same, same here. Yeah. So that's exactly what I'm doing. But, but, I, but I think the Cochrane thing is different because I think it's really yeah, yeah, important yeah, yeah. to make the point that masks work when they're needed. Do we need them now? I think in limited situations. And I agree with you, Carlos. And I think this has been a really interesting discussion because I, I mean, I think Cochrane reviews. I mean, I've got other thoughts about the process, but um, you know, you're talking about a big public health policy question, not at an individual level. Yeah. Um, so I, I think what we're, what we're hearing is that, yeah, I think probably, I mean, uh, this is my bias perhaps, but I think masks work on an individual uh, level to reduce your risk um, of this and probably other transmissible pathogens. A good mask work appropriately. But uh, can we prove in a randomized way that it works in a population? That's going to be kind of hard to do that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's impossible because only about 40% of the people in the trials in general were wearing masks. Do it anyway, yeah, even, if they say, even um, if they say they are, right? So, yeah. you know, there's, uh, so, there's the classic we, epidemiologic case study of... Um, do we know that parachutes work uh, when you're yeah. jumping out of airplanes? Yeah. So what's the control? <laughs> yeah, group? you're not going to do a randomized study in healthcare workers. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so uh, be, uh, we're we're running close to uh, uh, the end of the of the hour. I want to make sure that we get to a couple of the things that came up uh, in kind of open uh, open dialogues before we had this uh, discussion today. Of other infectious diseases, we, we I mentioned at the start of this uh, discussion that we are interested in watching other things going on. Um, there's been, and it came up just in passing already in our discussion, the avian flu. Um, avian flu is, you know, it's raging uh, quite a bit. Uh, there, are, I think, might be some risk for humans. Uh, somebody want to tackle that and tell us about where we stand with avian flu and should that be something that people are watching? Well, we're watching it. The surveillance is great. Um, right now, over almost 60 million birds have been culled in the U.S. because of outbreaks. It's a very sustained, long outbreak right now among H5 among birds in the U.S. Uh, there have been. There's only been one human case in the U.S. this year. One in the. I think it was in the U.K. last Policy. year. Yeah, and Colorado in the, in the yeah US. the Colorado case in the U.S. and both were mildly uh, mildly symptomatic. Um, and so, and we have a good H5 and uh, H5N7 st stockpile of vaccine if we need it. So it is something to keep an eye on. This is a good example, I think, of where we need to track so that we can be ready. And people have been ready. I think the companies have been ready with uh, various uh, sero HPAI serotype vaccines for this potential spillover. So bottom line here is watch for it, but don't, don't worry excessively yeah. right yeah but you know, I, you know on the other hand the writing is on the wall yeah. eventually that this yeah. will be a pandemic because again we've seen there are two things one is leaving the birds and going to mammals but mammal to mammal transmission and there were outbreaks in you know thousands of seals like in spain and stuff like that and then you know so i think that is the worry but again nothing right now but i think it means that we need to invest in public health and in vaccines and surveillance. And avian flu has like a 58% mortality when you look at this particular uh, H5N1 subtype. Another another virus that's uh, that's cropped up before, it's kind of hitting the scene a little bit, is dengue, uh, a comment on dengue infection? Global warming. Um, yeah. it's, we're seeing it go up crazily all over the world. Um, the, the first time ever case in Arizona, in Maricopa right. County, they saw this person come back from Mexico who had dengue for only, but only spent a few hours in Mexicali. So then the CDC came down, did this huge surveillance and then found some, and then found mosquitoes in Arizona that had, uh, 
uh, 80s Egyptian mosquitoes that had uh, dengue and then found this person by doing, uh, you know, serologies on the, the neighborhoods who had evidence of dengue, but had never traveled. So I think, you know, it's not a big surprise, but it's just kind of scary. Uh, Florida has a bunch of dengue uh, well, normally we, anyway. So we have the, we, so I have a pediatric um, arbovirology faculty member here and she studies dengue and chikungunya in Kenya primarily. But actually, if you look at, we have a biologist here who's really tracking the climate change issue and we have Aedes aegypti. It's very clear we have the vector. Um, an introduction could lead to problems. We have a, we had big dengue outbreaks in Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, and now we are using Dengvaxia in Puerto Rico because it is essentially considered to be potentially endemic. Um, the vaccine is not easy to use. Um, it's primarily targeted to children, um, but it is a vaccine, and there are other good vaccine candidates that are in trials right now that we hope will actually overcome some of the difficulties that the Dengvaxia uh, vaccine is, but you know, it's, it can lead to explosive outbreaks, Venezuela, the Philippines, where it's introduced, it can lead to really extensive uh, cyclical outbreaks. So I think we have to just, again, as Peter mentioned, surveillance and tracking, but the vaccine, we need a better vaccine. So another infection, that's not a virus, guys, I don't think, uh, C. auris, uh, Canada auris. Um, uh, well, at least it's not cordyceps from the last one. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, Canada Oris is a it's a worrisome pathogen, right? It's a worrisome pathogen because of its persistence and because of its rapid spread. There was an article in the Washington Post this morning that people are saying, "Oh, you know, we have a new 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 pathogen." It's not new; it's yeah. been known for several years. Uh, many people have been tracking its epidemiology and its spread in many countries. It's 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 a very bad nosocomial pathogen. It's a very <laughs> bad hospital pathogen, and once it gets into your hospital, it's really hard to get rid of. It's you know, there's cases and then there's a carriage and there's asymptomatic carriage that moves it from one nursing home to the hospital and back. And, you know, I think this is a new thing for, our, this is a new nightmare for our hospital infection uh, uh, colleagues. It reminds so, me of West Nile because it used to, yeah. even though it's not a mosquito, because it used to be on the East Coast mainly. And, you know, in uh, the last couple of years, the number one and number two states for number of cases now are Nevada and California. So Canada Oris is not a problem of the East Coast Although New York is a big state too, and Florida, but it's coming to the it has come to the West Coast. Although there was some suspicion early on, as this uh, as this infection became uh, started to be talked about, that hospitals were actually uh, downplaying uh, the cases that they had uh, for fear of driving away uh, other other paying patients. So I think uh, I'm not sure we exactly know uh, the nature of the epidemic or the epidemiology yet. Uh, there's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of discussion in the Q and A today about masks. Uh, other people want to get back into that discussion. I think we can avoid it today, but maybe at our next dialogue we can we can come to it. Uh, also, uh, gowns. Um, I think it raises the whole question of all the recommendations in hospital settings for personal protective equipment and kind of does it really work? And we know that. Um, a lot of these things do interfere to some degree with patient care because they discourage people from, from visiting and well, you know, the, the, most, the most important thing that we know works, and we wish, again, it's like the vaccine, it's can washing, right? And, yeah. and we, we need people to can wash. And it's amazing that, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of years after Semmelweis, we're still having to tell people hand washing is essential part of medical care. It should not be something that, that, uh, that's optional, yet yet we see colleagues don't do it. And, and that's yeah, yeah, problematic, yeah. Paul. And, and that's something that you know we need to continue working on. Is scan washing is an essential strategy. I, so, I do worry about, about isolation. I do worry about yeah, what it yeah. does to patients. So, you know, the, the tray that is left outside the patient room and nobody goes in. And it's it's problematic and, and it creates a lot of, of stigma and a lot of discrimination for our patients. The one, one disease I wanted to, to talk about. Before. Can I just come back to that really quick? Though? There, a few, year, a few years ago, 10 seconds. A few years ago at ID Week, there was a really nice symposium on does uh, does PPE really work to prevent you know a lot of this nosocomial transmission? And I think the data were really mixed. Um, it wasn't clear. The problem is that there isn't a lot of funding available to really study what right, kind right. of what kind of isolation measures do we take. I agree with Carlos. We need to do hand washing for sure. The gown and gloves issue. Do we really need that? I, I think the data, I don't think the data is that let's, great. Let's so. put that on the table for our next discussion. And I'm going to bring this to an 
end uh, uh, I want to with, say. With, two, with two bottom lines. One is, uh, please, please get your own uh, bivalent boost. Encourage other people, especially people at higher risk, to get a bivalent boost. And don't forget hand washing. Peter, what else do you have to say? Um, <laughs> I think this is another table. Five seconds. But yeah, Babesia also increasing in the okay, Northeast we'll, and tick-borne diseases. But we'll come back. We'll Paxlovid, come back Paxlovid, Paxlovid, Paxlovid. Okay, got it. Okay, uh, uh, thank you everyone for participating. Uh, it's been another uh, great freewheeling discussion. Hopefully it's been helpful. Um, and the organization I mentioned, ISUSA, uh, uh, continues to have other uh, uh, ways to learn about what's going on. The dialogues that we have are going to continue for at least a while longer until this is all over. Uh, but I'll, again, remind you, I think it's on the next slide, perhaps the long COVID discussion um, that I mentioned earlier um, on uh, June uh, 22nd. Here we go. Uh, so again, thank you. Thanks to the uh, ISUSA staff for uh, getting this all organized, for bringing these uh, uh, fabulous experts together uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.